The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading solar inverter supplier by volume in the world, and it's now a leading supplier across the Americas with the world's most powerful 250-kilowatt, 1,500-volt string inverter. SunGrow is providing disruptive technology for utility-scale projects. You can find out more at sungrowpower.com. While you're there cruising the internet, don't forget to download GTM's new iOS news app at the Apple Store. It's redesigned. It's the perfect way to get your clean energy business news on your phone, the top clean energy business news that GTM puts out every day. The Android app is coming soon, so look out for that. And if you prefer the old-fashioned way, go to greentechmedia.com newsletters to sign up for email news in your inbox every morning. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey, your host and a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome. This week, in nearly every corner of the country, energy storage projects are finding their way onto the grid, getting bigger, cheaper, more diverse, and even a little bit weirder. Most of all, they're just becoming normal. We are going to talk about the new normal for power operations, and they include a lot of batteries and maybe some air tanks, water pumps, and cranes, too. We're starting with a roundup of the most topical projects that tell us something unique about where storage is headed. Then we'll look at one novel approach, a gravity-based system from Energy Vault that just got a major injection of Japanese venture dollars. And finally, we'll look at all the other alternatives to lithium-ion that are vying for traction in the market. Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solutions is my co-host. She's in the remote Adirondack region of New York this week again. New mic in hand after uh, hers broke minutes before recording last week. How are we doing, Catherine? We're doing great. Thank you for getting Amazon to send it to me. So evidently, Amazon, the Amazon truck took a look at our driveway, threw the stuff out the window, and backed out. I would have had a fit if I had seen that. <laughs> I, I knew you would. I, did, I didn't want to tell you. <laughs> Jager is in Iceland this week. Filling in for him is the fabled, the preeminent, the unrivaled Julian Spector. Julian is a staff writer at Green Tech Media and a periodic guest on our podcasts. Julian, welcome. You just moved to LA. How does it compare so far to the Bay Area? So I always thought I was going to be like a Northern Californian at heart, but uh, Southern California is really um, going on strong. I think the sunshine is nice. The uh, clear blue skies, uh, the sunsets are amazing. uh, And there's so much good food down here. Um, And a lot of you know, grid decarbonization efforts underway. So that's exciting too. I saw in July that the LA Department of Water and Power signed a major deal for solar with batteries for 1.9 cents per kilowatt hour. Are you just packing up your belongings and following the cheapest projects around the country? Yep. Yes. Uh, Left PG&E territory for LADWP and, uh, you know, haven't looked back yet. Well, that, uh, That L.A. project is just one of many turning heads in the U.S. and around the world. It's abundantly clear that storage, and when we say storage, we're talking mostly about lithium-ion batteries at this point, uh, is emerging as a viable alternative to traditional power plant development. We're talking mostly about replacing expensive peaking power plants, but bulk power could be within sight. And both Catherine and Julian are following these trends. So, Julian, to your reporting first... um, For the last few years, we've had a handful of conversations pointing out how serious utilities and developers were starting to take storage. When you think about the kind of stuff that you're reporting on now, what makes 2019 unique so far in your experience? 
Yeah, so we've come a long way since I walked into the Green Tech Beanie office uh, over three years ago. And and I don't know if you remember, first day you said, hey, uh, we want you to report on energy storage. And I kind of thought like, okay, I'll see if there's any stories to write on that. Uh, And, you know, from the days of little pilots, tiny things, or a lot of forward-looking kind of policy stories of, hey, maybe one day soon this target will lead to a thriving storage market. Uh, The last few months have just been a boom time of uh, massive projects really all over the country. Um, So all all the news I've been working on in in the recent months has really led me to believe that storage is already competing more effectively and in more places than a lot of people realize. Yeah, I spent some time talking with the folks at Fluence, and they said exactly that, that the deals are getting much bigger. So they're 300 to 400 megawatt deals generally now. And that utilities are really taking on more than those pilots. So utilities are taking big positions on storage and really building it into the way they're thinking about their planning. So I want to talk about some of the specific deals and, again, what they tell us about what's working um, and what's of interest for utilities and developers, what makes economic sense. So let's start first with uh, investor-owned utilities. Any projects stand out to you that IOUs have procured this year that uh, indicate where the market is headed? Yeah, well, there's uh, a few IOUs that have really taken the mantle of leadership on this. Um, I mean, in California, they they had to. There was a law uh, requiring them to buy storage. Um, but an interesting one to look at is Arizona, uh, where Arizona Public Service, which is the biggest IOU there, uh, has essentially decided to pair all their utility-scale solar with batteries. Um, and they, uh, you know... To talk about this solar after sunset plan to um, utilize the super cheap desert solar power they have, but but make it available in the uh, in the evenings and at night. And um, that really started in 2018 when First Solar uh, won a competitive bid to deliver five hours of evening peak power in the summertime, and they beat gas plants for that. So that was in 2018. Uh, and any any type of resource could compete, but the the combination of really cheap solar with the the lithium ion pricing that they could muster um, was already out competing uh, gas peakers. And since then, APS has really doubled down, and they're looking at like you know gigawatt hour scale of of storage rollout. Uh, complicated a little bit by the uh, the fire at one of their early battery facilities in April, which is still the cause of that still being investigated. But um, they have said that they're, they're still really bullish on batteries as a, a really effective part of the grid. Yeah. And Julian, with um, NV Energy right next door to Arizona, Nevada was looking at this hulkingly big project with 1,200 meg- um, megawatts of solar and 690 megawatts of storage. That was also pretty impressive. Yeah. And um, another important one to look at is Excel Energy, which covers eight states in the Midwest and, and the West, um, notably Colorado and Minnesota. And they've famously committed to 100% clean energy uh, several decades out. But uh, by 2030, they want to get you know major carbon reductions, I think 80% below their, their benchmark. And uh, they're already shutting down or, or uh, initiating the shutdowns of coal plants and replacing them with wind and solar and batteries. Um, 
And they've done the math and they think it uh, it, it adds value to their shareholders uh, and it keeps power prices affordable for their customers uh, while making the, the power supply cleaner. So that's a really important one to watch as far as for-profit companies seizing on this clean energy today. Uh, not, not just because it's like, the right thing to do or they feel good about it, but they, they've actually made a, a very clear economic case for it. The Excel case study is an interesting one because they've said, we think we've got the right mix of technologies to get us to 80% carbon-free electricity, but the last 20% we're leaving open and we're trying to figure out how we get there. Maybe it's some technology that we are not even thinking about today. Maybe it's a variation thereof. Um, when you think about their plans to get from 80 to 100%, carbon-free electricity. Where do you think storage will fit into that? Well, actually, I think it's helpful to understand where does storage fit in to that first 80%? And then do they say much about where storage might fit into that last 20%? Yeah. So I think uh, as a general observation, I think they're being very honest uh, in that framing. They're, they're saying, hey, we know how to build cheap wind and solar and, and batteries. And the next decade, there's a lot of room to just crank on that. Um, but we don't think that'll get us all the way. So, you know, lithium ion, they can do four hour duration. I'm sure we'll get into longer durations uh, in the next few years, but no one's really expecting that to, to manage, say, a week of, of storage or even month, you know, if, you, if you're trying to balance seasonal swings in uh, solar availability or wind. So I think they're, they're, being direct about that of saying we we know how to you know push the current technologies as far as we can push them and then we're going to need something else in the next 10 years or beyond to um, take it to, to a fully clean grid uh, and what I would just observe about that is you know we're in a capitalist system uh, people do things that they think they can earn a return on and up until this point there was really no way to make money on super long duration storage like that that just wasn't a, a good place for private actors to invest their their money in in hopes of a return um but now we have all these states sending sending very strong policy signals in fact requiring uh fossil fuels to be eliminated from from the power grid um and that's a very good reason to to start investing so i i would just say um I don't think we should be scared about that uncertainty. I, I think it's uh, uh, making the case that, hey, 10 years, 20 years, that's a, a lot of time. And when you have the best minds and, and the, the biggest companies really tackling that problem head on, um, we're going to find some things that haven't emerged so far. I think another thing that folks like Fluence are is looking at are all source procurements. So as utilities begin to define more what they need, much more specifically based on when they need certain services at certain times of day, rather than we just need X gigawatts all the time, you know, they're being much more sophisticated about when they need things. And if they do an all source procurement, then renewables and storage pencils out a lot of the time. And um, they're finding certainly renewable energy developers, about, you know, they're all looking at pairing storage with whatever they develop. And about 50% of those pencil out with no problem. So part of this is uh, utilities being able to define better what they need and then allowing everybody to compete for it. 
And to round out the IOU discussion, on the other end of the spectrum, you've got a utility like Dominion Energy in the southeast, and they're trying to build pilot storage projects and then study them for a number of years. So you've got a bunch of utilities who have a decade or more experience with storage, have studied this stuff, and are now uh, procuring you know, hundreds of megawatts or gigawatts of capacity. Uh, why is Dominion like so cautious on that end of the spectrum? They're just they're they're trying to figure out if it if it works for them. Yeah, I would say this. It's not just a Dominion thing. This reflects the um, fractured nature of our utility regulatory system. That state by state, you can have utilities in one state. You know, really pedal to the metal, going all all out uh, on, on hundreds of megawatts of storage procurement today for commercial use that they're very confident in. And then utilities in other parts of the country not doing anything, uh, which is still the case for, for many of them, or saying we want to get involved, but in a very small way. So um, as recently as last year, I, I covered Dominion's um, integrated resource plan, so their, their long-term plan for the future acknowledged that battery storage was an emerging technology, but didn't have any any plans on the books to, to do anything with it. Um, then just recently, they announced that they do want to build some pilots. Um, it's going to be four small ones, uh, totaling 18 megawatts, and they're going to test things like can storage shift solar power so you can use it in the, in the evening, or can storage uh, defer uh, substation upgrades, um, which I'm sure listeners uh, will, will notice has, has been done elsewhere uh, many times. Uh, but, you know, I talked to Dominion. They said, you know, it's one thing to know that it can work, but to gain that firsthand experience is really valuable. And so we want to, you know, test it out for ourselves and get familiar with it. Um, so, you know, I, I think there, there is an argument there, but it, it is kind of funny looking from the outside, at least, and seeing, uh, just how different utilities can, um, approach the, the exact same technology and the exact same uses of that technology. Catherine, is that reflective of the broader industry? I actually think they are behind and they are slower. I mean, you look at FPNL, which has traditionally been really dragging its feet on solar in particular, and they just announced this 409 megawatt Manatee Energy Storage Center um, a few weeks ago. And so I actually think Dominion is going to quickly learn <laughs> that these tiny pilots that they're proposing are going to work and then they'll be able to open up the market because they will see economic benefits by making storage really be part of their entire plan. And I think it's worth noting that in the in the regulated utility environment, um, you know, they make a return on building stuff. And if they can pitch their regulators on, hey, we want to build this innovative thing that helps us integrate clean energy, you know, isn't that a win-win? Um, it it could become a real uh, cash generator for them if, if they figure out how to um, position it the right way. And I think Florida Power and Light's probably in that bucket. You know, they they uh, are very good at um, you know making what they want happen. And they decided a 409 megawatt battery to displace some some older gas uh, resources was uh, something they wanted to do, and they're just going for it. The most interesting story in storage, in my opinion, is uh, what's happening with municipal utilities. There are a handful of cities, municipal utilities, that 
own and operate really dirty, old gas peaker plants, and they're, they're trying to figure out what kind of resources they can use to phase those plants out because they're already retiring or they're trying to retire them early. What is happening in that realm and where is storage being integrated? Yeah, the municipals have really taken a, a leadership stance on, on storage as well. Um, I think it's important to note the governance structure here. So instead of owing, uh, you know, owing their loyalty to shareholders uh, on Wall Street or wherever, um, they they report to the city, to the community where they operate. And uh, that, I think, aligns incentives in a, in a really powerful way and also, they tend to have flatter hierarchies, so they can, if they want to do something, they can move a lot more quickly on it. Um, so just in the last few months, uh, a, a uh, municipal in Glendale, not far from where I live, um, went through a, a very dramatic reversal where a year ago they'd been on the cusp of approving a new gas peaker that was going to cost $500 million, and it, it was actually just a, uh, it was a super backup resource. So in case not just one, but two of their major power supplies were simultaneously interrupted, they wanted to have this this backup plant, but it was going to be hugely expensive. Um, and activists in the community pushed to stop it in this dramatic late night city council meeting. The city council voted to pause and examine clean alternatives. And uh, the utility, you know, went and did that and came back uh, and just uh, a, a few weeks ago announced a, a, a totally different plan where they're uh, they're buying large batteries, they're contracting with Sunrun for distributed batteries in homes, uh, as well as some energy efficiency, and then uh, a few Wurzilla engines that are much smaller units that can fire up very quickly, and they scrap the uh, the gas plant altogether. Um, so I think that might be the fastest energy transition I've seen in a in a discrete company, uh, and it was really because the uh, the utility was answering the call they they heard from the the city's leadership and and the community at large. Is some of that because with municipalities, based on their bond rating, they can get lower cost of capital for investment? Well, I. Don't know if that was really a driver of this one. Um, I mean, they were they were going to take out a bond on the gas plant that had been proposed, and then they would have been paying that off for years and years. Um, so I I actually they they didn't cite kind of financing as a as a reason for for going forward with the clean energy portfolio. I think it was it was really a case of they'd been looking at the problem through the old lens of. Uh, hey, if we need capacity, we need a gas plant, uh, and and the planning for this started, you know, five years ago, uh, and so then when they applied that new lens, like you were saying about going for the all source uh, competitive solicitations, they they realized, oh, actually, there's all these other tools out there now that are commercially ready and uh, quite um, competitive economically, so they can really more efficiently allocate their capital with whatever bond they take out, right? Yeah, exactly. And uh, so it's actually, it's saving them money compared to the gas plant. And um, then the there's the benefit of, it won't just be sitting idle, you know, waiting for not one, but two major power sources to get knocked out. Uh, all the batteries can be operating daily and, you know, uh, providing services and generating value uh, for, for the community. So, uh, pretty pretty exciting case study of, 
you know, what can happen when you expand your, your mindset around uh, how to address grid uh, needs. A lot of these projects are competing with peaking gas plants. And I guess the question is, when are we going to get round the clock uh, renewable electricity with storage that can start to knock off bulk power, bulk gas delivery? What kind of projects are you seeing in this area? And are we anywhere close to getting beyond the peaker? So there was a very exciting project uh, out of Oklahoma um, that uh, Nextera is building for the Western Farmers Electrical Cooperative. And this is a wind plus solar plus storage deal. Um, it'll be the largest of its kind in in the country. And um, it, it started life as uh, they needed capacity and they realized the, the solar battery combination would be cheaper than a, a gas plant. And being a cooperative, it's similar to the the municipal structure and that it's it's locally run and you know the the community likes cleaner air um so they decided to go with that and then threw in the wind you know because it was cheap and it's in a great uh wind resource area um and this is you know it's not a, a baseload plant but it is a new type of resource i think where you you're pairing the daytime solar production with wind that is largely blowing at night and then have a, a very large battery in between to kind of tide tied over the, the gaps between those two. Um, and so, you know, it's not, it's not exactly the same as a fully dispatchable baseload plant, but uh, compared to just wind by itself or solar by itself, it, it really does feel like a new type of tool for, for turning renewables into more of a round the clock resource. That also speaks to this kind of system as a transmission asset, which is kind of the next big play, I think, and what's happening in Germany and Chile and some other places is like uh, complementary to transmission, but certainly allowing some time for transmission to be built by building these other projects. Totally. And I, I talked to developers uh, about this, and they, they point to that transmission value as a, a huge driver for specifically for these hybrid plants, because the idea is uh, you don't want to be shipping your wind when pricing's gone negative and, uh, you know, or, or maybe there's more power to generate than you have uh, an interconnection agreement for. And so the battery lets you store that and parcel it out over more hours of the day and uh, really just make better uh, economic use of the uh, kind of bandwidth that you've, you've contracted for on the grid. So to finish up, you'll know I always say energy storage is the bacon of the grid, but I saw recently Chris Shelton from AES said, it's not just the bacon, it's the full entree now. So I think that's what Julian's telling us. <laughs> the whole hog. Pushing those metaphors to, to new heights, yeah. <laughs> or depths. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a quick pause here to talk about our sponsor, SunGrow. SunGrow has 82 gigawatts of inverters deployed across the globe, and it's now expanding rapidly in the U.S. It has more than one and a half gigawatts of projects booked in 2019 alone. Speaking of novel projects, one of SunGrow's projects is a 27-megawatt facility for the Navajo Tribal Utility Authority, and that's going to double the amount of solar power that the Navajo Nation has in Kayenta. It's also going to replace a coal plant that's closing later this year. Kayenta 2 is going to bring critical power to the Navajo Nation, where 15,000 people live without regular access to power. Excess solar is also going to be sold back to the grid to earn money for the Navajo Nation. SunGrow is not just focused on solar power. 
it is focused on storage, very relevant to today's discussion. Its storage inverters are integrated into 200 megawatt hours worth of battery projects across the U.S. Check out more about what SunGrow is up to at Solar Power International in Salt Lake this September at booth 2211 or go to sungrowpower.com. Just a quick note before we get into the second half of the show, we had a little technical glitch where both our source file and our backup file failed, um, and and that meant that Catherine had to drop off at the very end of the show. So you're going to hear her in the second segment, but then in the third segment, you'll just hear me and Julian. Either way, it's a great conversation, but just wanted to give you a heads up. That's why uh, it's only two of us at the end of the podcast. Enjoy. Let's shift our attention to a non-battery technology that's suddenly capturing people's attention, gravity storage. No, I'm not talking about pumped hydro. I'm talking about a tower made out of concrete bricks. It relies on the same physics and engineering as pumped hydro, though. A company called Energy Vault picked up $110 million from the venture arm of Japanese company uh, SoftBank. SoftBank is a massive conglomerate. It owns or has a financial stake in Sprint, in Yahoo Japan, in the robot company Boston Dynamics, a whole host of companies. And its executives have talked a pretty big game about becoming a renewable energy powerhouse, but it hasn't delivered on that promise. But now it's exploring storage. So what is it about Energy Vault that attracted SoftBank, and will this novel form of gravity storage work? Julian, who is Energy Vault, and what is this form of storage that it's trying to commercialize? Yeah, so Energy Vault uh, burst onto the scene last fall at Energy Storage North America. Um, they are the kind of company that um, flies in the face of pretty much everything I've, I've learned covering the energy storage market in the last few years. Um, you know, at a time when lithium ion is accounting for it was more than 99% of installations in the U.S. in, in the first quarter this year. Um, and uh, there's so much momentum behind that. Uh, they, they're doing a completely unprecedented uh, type of storage. So like you said, they um, stack large blocks uh, with a, a specialized crane that has six arms and uh, some some machine vision algorithms so that it can operate on its own. Um, so autonomous crane about 35 stories high um, that's picking up these blocks that are each uh, about 35 metric tons. And uh, so when it has extra power from you know wind or solar, they lift the blocks up and stack them into a tower around the crane. And when you want to discharge, you grab the blocks and drop them down and it regenerates the the power and uh, so their goal is to pair with renewables and offer 24 7 clean energy uh, for a price that's cheaper than the fossil fuel equivalent as i'm hearing you describe this i'm getting like a warning bell buzzing in my head because i've seen so many companies with these extremely capital intensive materials intensive technologies that just don't have much room for cost reduction and uh, y- you know you look at all the variations of solar that just got destroyed by PV and you know I can't see how you can squeeze a lot of costs out of this maybe you know the crane design so um, it, it, is this just does this seem crazy to you I would say there's very good reason to have those warning bells going off Um the last few years, we've seen 
so many startups that were taking a an unconventional approach to storage uh, eventually fail and run out of money and uh, you know not get to market. And in particular, there there have been a, a string of uh, gravity based uh, storage companies that have have not taken off. Um, even a, a predecessor to this one, um, they they both came out of the Idea Lab, uh, which is Bill Gross's incubator in Pasadena. Um, there's one called Energy Cash that was lifting uh, weights up an incline on kind of a ski lift. And they, they built a small pilot. And it, it was largely the same pitch. I mean, the pitch is um, pumped hydro is great, but you can't build it everywhere. So let's kind of make a product that replicates that concept in a, in a more widely... Um, a deliverable way. Um, what Energy Vault is doing differently is piggybacking on existing supply chains from other industries. So I, I posed that exact question to the CEO, Robert Picconi, and um, he said, yeah, you know, in the past, uh, gravity companies have been trying to create their own technology um, wholesale. And what we're doing is Using cranes, which there's a there's a very robust supply chain around the world for cranes, um, they've uh, partnered with companies like GE for the motors that will spin and you know generate the power. So that's that's not a not a technology risk for them. Uh, they've put their own IP into the algorithms to guide the crane, um, and that's actually fairly complicated because it has to account for you know wind and weather interference and you're, you're moving super heavy objects through space at high speed so not not a simple thing but the the other big place where they've uh, developed their own IP is actually on the the bricks themselves uh, they partnered with um, the Mexican concrete uh, conglomerate semex uh, and uh, have really been working on low-cost composite materials um, so the idea is that you'll actually mine the soil and, and rocks on site where you're trying to build the plant. And then through a, a new process that they've created with the, the materials scientists at, at Semex, uh, you, you build a kiln on site and pump out bricks on site without having to transport them. Um, so, you know, lithium ion is a, is a mass produced, mass manufactured product that's piggybacking on the electric vehicle supply chain. But um, this will be a constructed real power plant. Um, but their, their hope is that by using uh, existing materials that are widely available and then um, producing bricks that are, that are very low cost uh, or even using like waste rubble from uh, other sites where they could maybe get paid to uh, take that waste, uh, that, they, that they're going to keep the cost low. Yeah, I'm sorry to be a fuddy-duddy. It just seems complicated. Uh, and it doesn't, you're right, Stephen, it doesn't seem like you could get that much cheaper. And and that there are ways where, you know, like there's this company Gravitricity, which is like a clock weight using existing mine shafts where you're using gravity, but you're going down into existing holes. It seems like it would be easier to fall than it would be to construct something and then deconstruct it. I don't know. I watched every single video available on YouTube for Energy Vault, and I still couldn't figure out, you know, exactly what the value add would be of something like this. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm all for trying new technologies. I just, uh, this one seems a bit of a stretch. Well, is it going to be cited with renewable energy or is it just 
taking grid electricity and hoping that the electricity system itself is cleaned up over time. They, they talk about uh, several different use cases. Uh, a big one is siting it alongside wind and solar plants. Um, and actually their first uh, announced project is with Tata Power Company in India, which is uh, a huge renewables developer, uh, among other forms of power that they produce. Um, but they, they also talk about it as an off-grid asset um, and powering factories, industrial facilities, even desalination plants. Um, so the idea is any, any place that you need constant round-the-clock power, but you want to get it clean or or if you're off-grid uh, doing some sort of industrial uh, process and uh, the, the renewables are just much cheaper than tr- diesel, um, those, are, those are markets they're, they're trying to target as well. So, Catherine, it sounds like you and I are skeptical, borderline cynical. Julian, you're a natural skeptic as a journalist covering this stuff. Can we compare this with pumped hydro? I think, uh, you know, it's important to recognize pumped hydro is the great unsung hero of the grid. It's... 97% of, of U.S. grid storage, but it's almost impossible to build any new uh, iterations of it. Um, I did recently write about a project in Montana that a, a group called Absaroka Energy is developing. Um, they have financing from uh, the Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners, and they have all their permits. They're looking for a a customer, Um, but they've been working on that for 10 years. And when you factor in uh, the time to construct, assuming they do find a partner uh, to to be the off-taker, maybe a 15-year development cycle. Um, So that's really the main hang-up. And I should note, that one is a, it's not attached to any existing river or or water system. They're, They're building these contained lined reservoirs um so it's uh it's not influencing uh, existing ecosystems in the way that the the old dams would um so i think energy vault's really trying to fill the gap for nearer term long duration storage um you know if you don't want to wait 10 or 15 years uh they want to offer you something in in the near term uh and i should say they um, told me that they're on track to complete two full-size plants this year, um, the, the one for Tata and then another uh, demonstration project in Italy. Uh, and they hinted that there's other projects that have not been made public yet. Um, so the, the time from you know having the permits and having the land to getting all the, getting all the equipment on site and building it, uh, Robert said, is about six to eight months uh, construction time. So that's that's the clear benefit compared to pumped hydro is, you know, if you can get one of these up and running in less than a year, uh, that's, a, that's a lot faster than a decade or more. Have they built one yet? So they have one that's a, a scale model, a one-seventh scale model that's uh, been operating in Switzerland since last year. Um, and then these two... Uh, plants that I mentioned are, are going to be uh, supposedly coming online this year. I guess the final question is one that we haven't addressed yet uh, and probably the most important one for many of our listeners. What does it cost? What is it going to cost to build these projects? What kind of price can they deliver? So the company insists that they can sell today at uh, $200 per kilowatt hour in the in the upfront capital expense. 
which is really cheap for long duration. Um, the the Wood McKenzie calculations on uh, utility scale lithium ion systems are in the range of four hundred fifty to five hundred fifty dollars per kilowatt hour today. Uh, so this is you know half of that and able to go for many more hours than lithium ion systems do. Um, and then they also stress that over a 25-year lifetime, they, of course, say uh, that their system does not degrade um, in the way that lithium-ion does. Uh, pretty much every company building a lithium-ion alternative says they, they have no degradation, but, of course, these haven't been in the field for 25 years, so you know, flag that for, for follow-up in a few decades. Um, but, yeah, they say that the, the levelized cost is going to be super cheap, um, you know, talking about three to seven cents per kilowatt hour, um, which would just blow out really any any of the other storage options out there. Um, now, as a journalist, it's it's hard. Sounds too good be too good to be true. Right? Yeah, it's hard for me. You know, I'm not in the in the room contracting and, and doing the deals. Um, so, I, I you know, I th- I think we'll have to wait and see if the customer uptake uh, follows from that. Um, and you know, with the 110 million dollars behind them from SoftBank, they'll be able to uh, really scale their their global sales operation and and get going. I, I think another risk factor is, you know, they haven't built a, a full commercial system as far as we know. Um, and now with this money coming in, they're they're looking at scaling globally while still getting to market with their their initial product. Uh, and that strikes me as a as a challenge because you know uh, often in the past companies take years to to really tune their their storage device and um, and then go to market. But then again, you know the flow battery people have been at it for years and haven't really made it past that hurdle of the small scale tests. So uh, it could be that um, this is the kind of ambition that's needed to to make uh, dispatchable clean energy a reality. Well, that's a good place to kick off our last segment, very relevant to the Energy Vault conversation. I want to look at the many alternatives to lithium-ion batteries that companies are trying to deploy and develop. Lithium-ion doesn't just dominate the storage market. It practically is the storage market. You know, you said 99% of systems being installed today use some variation of a lithium-ion chemistry. But there's an increased interest among investors and inventors in diurnal and seasonal storage. And so power to gas, new battery chemistries, pumped hydro, things like gravity storage, they're getting a fresh look, which is why that $110 million from SoftBank does tell us something about investor interest and sort of a bullishness on the need for long-term uh, long duration storage. So Julian, for a while, everyone was talking about flow batteries, as you said, as the longer duration solution. Is that still the case? So there are still flow battery companies in existence. Uh, the ranks have thinned considerably over the last few years. Uh, and I, I would say that in general, the expectations have been tempered a bit. There, there's a lot of big promises, uh, you know, five or 10 years ago. And, there have been companies that have gotten units out into the field, but it's it's still at a very small scale. I think um, the the exception to that would be Avalon uh, is a is a flow battery company that partnered with Next Tracker on this solar plus storage tracker system, where they're they're pumping out the batteries 
on the the actual tracking device, um, and that's given them some considerable scale relative to the to the other companies that are really going small project by small project. Why do we even need alternatives to lithium ion batteries if they're getting so much cheaper, so much more dense, and they can do more on the grid? Well, even people who are very bullish about lithium ion acknowledge that in the long term, there's a there's a floor price baked in just from the cost of materials. And uh, that's not really an issue when you're looking at shifting solar power within the day for a few hours. But if we're trying to run an entire grid on clean energy, you have to do weeks and, and you know, seasons uh, when you shift from a sunny season to a, to a rainy season. And once you push out the, the timeline for, for that much storage, really, I, I don't know anyone who thinks lithium is the ideal economic fit for that. So what stands out to you as the areas that are getting the most attention in long duration storage? I think there's not one clear winner that's emerged. You know, all, all these technologies really need to be vetted in the market. But uh, a change I've noticed in the last year or so is that people are actually moving forward at scale with uh, long duration projects that are not lithium ion. Um, you know, I mentioned the uh, the pumped hydro one in in Montana. Um, there's also a company called Highview Power, which does this cryogenic storage or these super cool air in tanks and and they're leveraging compressors and equipment from the the oil and gas industry um and they recently signed a a, a a memorandum of understanding with tanaska to develop what they they called four gigascale cryogenic energy storage plants in the next couple of years um and we've even seen uh, a, a small resurgence in underground uh, compressed air uh, with this project in Utah that would be using underground salt caverns. Um, compressed air is like pumped hydro, can store huge amounts at, at, at very uh, favorable economics, but there have only been like two projects in the last few decades, so it's, it's very hard to actually deliver, but hey, if, it, if it can happen, uh, you know, that's great. Uh, and I think all, all this points to um, there's finally a critical mass of renewables on the grid such that developers actually see potential here and they uh, you know in the in the past clearly didn't see much of a driver to, to get cracking on this kind of uh, technology but people uh, are, are moving ahead now right so the difference may not be that we've seen these dramatic leaps in technologies that the market need is changing I would say so yeah Um and there's certainly plenty of technological innovation happening in labs that might trickle out in uh, the next 10 years or, or more. But um, a lot of these are, are technologies that aren't uh, particularly groundbreaking or, or you know, far out. Uh, but it's just a matter of making the project economics work at scale. And we're calling it there. Julian, thank you for taking Jigger's chair while he was out gallivanting around the world. We appreciate it. Oh, this was a lot of fun. And, you know, there's even more storage news that we didn't have time to touch on. So, uh, you know, thanks for having me on. Soon enough, we'll have you back. 
I am Stephen Lacey. I was with Catherine Hamilton and Julian Spector this week. We are The Energy Gang. Follow us on social media. Hit us up with any reactions to the stories that we discussed. Give us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts and send a link to your friends and colleagues. Thanks for being with us. We will catch you next week. Thank you.